Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So today we're going to talk about Swerve, you guys, and is ever-present in all of our lives. Hallelujah. (laughs) Why did you, Sam, I'm just going to ask a quick question. Why did you want to talk about the Swerve? Because because of the Stephen Greenblatt book that came out a number of years ago? Well, I'm not sure that I actually originated the, uh, the idea of talking about the Swerve, although we may have, you know, when we were sitting out. It's a determined point at which science for a moment flickered in the face of origination or cosmology or religion. And, you know, it's a sort of an interesting trope. I mean, certainly, you know, the survival of the manuscript is of poignant interest and uh, brings a tear to many a humanist eye. Mm -hmm. Uh, But overall, I think that it's, for me, connected to the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, um, you know, and that as a as a form of swerve, you know. Hmm. Yeah, you know that was an epitome of Roman civilization in that period, and that's when the Lucretian ideas were really flourishing. So, yeah, the eruption that that was a um, that was really the end of things for a lot of necessarily people. I mean, it's a tragedy, right? Hundreds, thousands of people. I think it was really upwards of 14 died. Mm. But more than that, you know, the um, the flower that was snuffed out. That was in Rome. Pompeii. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was in Pompeii. You know, like the, the um, ash, you know, the uh, carvings in ash, the void. Outside the, of Naples. Like people's bodies. Hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And that was the end of the Roman Empire, kind of? I think it was the end of like a really, um, you know, like, um, like I said, like a kind of flower, you know, like a kind of flower. There was a real sense of integration. You know, that was the origination of the Rotas Code. You know, that's the first instance, the first appearance of the Rotas Code, for example. So, you know, Judaism figures in there. But there was a lot of swerving between populations, and I think we could want to stay on topic. I mean, uh, so let's talk about the swerve. Well, I guess we should say that it's this idea that comes out of Lucretius, that it, it's something like there are atoms. Lucretius invented atoms or discovered atoms, depending on your politics. And it's something like the atoms are all raining down in the same direction, and one of them swerves. And then by that swerve, that's the beginning of the world, something like that. Is that right? Well, isn't that idea, um, doesn't it originate with Epicurus? Right, that's what my, uh, what's the word, uh, research indicated. That's what (laughs) Lucretius said. (laughs) Yeah, that's what my Wikipedia (laughs) page indicated. Epicurean physics, that the um, the atoms move downward in straight lines, then at a certain point there was a a swerve but what did that begin exactly that began the formation of organic forms i'm a little i want it i want to jump in here and just bracket off a little something i think we should save lucretius kick it uh, over the goalpost into next week 
because I feel, you know, that what we associate with the swerve in terms of Lagretius is actually a, a misnomer and that swerve is not a, a good translation of what Lucretius was pointing toward. Is that off the record? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're right in the right we're right in the sweet spot of understanding that swerve is a kind of a concoction um mm -hmm. you know and it's a it's a trope on what lucretius was actually saying which is a kind of different and a, and a sticky thing that i think we should as i said you know kick into next week you know like do this in part two okay and we should talk about swerve which is an infinite you know potentiality well i was thinking about the swerve in the context of um, of sermons. I, I really like sermons. Um, not all sermons, but I like the um, the literary genre and the internal logic of some of the best sermons that I'm aware of um, follow some some um, expression of a, a swerve. I think that's part of the reason I personally like that genre. You don't quite know. Would, yeah. Would you um, construe? Uh Jari's, you know, <laughs> at the beginning of Ubu Roy, you know, in terms of a sermon, would you consider that a sermon per se? Because I would consider that an instance of a swervical nature. I, I don't know anything about this work. I'm sorry. What What are you referring to? To the Ubu Roy by Alfred Jari that begins with uh, Ubu Roy entering the stage and uh, pronouncing uh, "mad." <laughs> shit. Yeah. Ah. Saying the word shit over and over again. Yeah, and then standing on the stage for like 20 minutes. And that was the first act. Yeah, like Uberwah is like this uh, famous, um, absurdist, kind of neo or, or pre Dadaist play, or maybe Dadaist play, mm -hmm. that kind of about this absolutely absurd king. Uberwa. Yeah. So that's what he's talking about. And the oh. king is this kind of a character that comes in, you know, like a sort of buffoon, clown. He's a clown king, kind of. Yeah. Kind of like our king now. Right. The yeah. uh, leader of our free world has yeah. elements of a cervical nature, you know, I feel. Although at the same time, um, you know, there's been a fascist. Um, groundswell, you know, for some time, you know, sort of biding its time at the same time. So, uh, well, I mean, what is the nature of swerve as a grammatical form? Mm. My major sort of interest, in part, with words like swerve is that it's a polysemy, or that's the best definition I've been able to come up with for a word that is both a noun and a verb. And oh. I have no idea. I've asked different grammaticians and stuff for what what is the grammatical form for something that is both a subject and an object, or, you know, both a verb and a thing. Hmm. Uh, because it seems to me that that's kind of the apotheosis, you know, like the coming together of the verb and the, and the thing as being one thing, you know, that is both verbal as well as, um, that is both stationary as well as, Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I was reading this magazine. I, my wife, for some complicated reason, got a 
uh, subscription to Art in America, the magazine Art in America. Uh, yeah, it's a part for two dollars. She got like a yearly, uh, yeah, yeah. year-long yeah. subscription for two dollars. So now I'm reading about Brancusi, and this <laughs> article is saying, <laughs> you know, uh, that Brancusi like uh, was the revolutionary figure in sculpture, exactly paralleled to Picasso in painting in the same year, 1907. Uh-huh. And this is. Uh, I'm holding this up so you can see it. This is his famous sculpture, Bird in Flight. And right. it's it's kind of like a swerve as a statue. It's kind of yeah. in motion, but it's stationary. It looks a little right, right, bit right, right. It's both like, like a sword. A purple uh, dynamic, as well as sort of a, a, a factual or objective stasis, yeah. Mm, it's kind of a... Um, it, it you know, it has this kind of circular base, then it gets very narrow, then it gradually gets very broad, sort of like an old-fashioned sword. Yeah, it uh, looks scimitar. Like a scimitar. Yeah. And it's kind we of a noun and a verb. That's why I bring it, it up. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, what's interesting is that it's uh, a biomimetic form. Yes. It seems to mimic nature. Yeah, it's called bird like in nature. space. Not yeah. bird in flight, bird in space. Oh, bird in space. Oh, that's better. I like that. Okay. Yeah. It's much better. Yeah. So even the title is kind of stationary and in motion at the same time. Bird yeah, in space, yeah. you sort of imply that it's in motion. You sort of think of it flying, but he's not saying it's flying. He's just saying it's in space. Well, I think that's like very much what it is. You know, the natural world is where there is no verb and object in mm. other words, everything is vibratory and alive and you know is in a state of um simultaneity you know on that polysemic access which swerve has what are the uh things that you associate what is the common association with swerve andrew well other than um sermons the one of the things i thought of was freudian analysis <laughs> Free association as a form of the swerve. Freud was uh, very interested in, Freudian analysts are very intrigued by moments when there's um, a quick movement, a swerve from one topic to another. Oh. Uh, I think it's the internal logic that is present in much of free, much of free association. So th- that's one thing that I was thinking about. Hmm. Oh, totally, man. I'm with you. Perhaps, you know, move it, you know, a few steps back and just say the nature of conversation, you know, any conversation mm. that has real embodiment is swervical, you know, <laughs> it's a, you know what I mean? It's full of um, spontaneity and, uh, and idiosyncrasies or asymmetrical, you know, illogical and be, you know. And humor. Humor, in a sense, is a swerve. And Freud was fascinated by jokes. Very much so. Yeah, like like that's one way that a conversation makes its its turn is through somebody makes a joke. That's one place where it swerves. I like to laugh. I'm not very, you know, I don't like, I don't know. I laugh. I like to laugh. Laughter is a swerve, is inherently a kind of um, breakout mm. moment, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. Yeah. When, when did you guys first encounter that word? Do you have a recollection? What was I mean, the I'm, 
Well, I mean, you know, obviously swerve is associated with like you to avoid an accident is to avoid yeah. um, a problem. You know, that's the um, that's its idiosyncratic. You know, that's that's what swerve means. I mean, I'm trying to think. I've been lately thinking about my history as a reader. You uh-huh. know, different times in my life, what I was reading, each place that I lived. And, you know, until I was four, I lived in the West Village. I lived in um, Greenwich Village, what was then Greenwich Village. And I think I did not read. So my whole first, um, you know, memories are illiterate. You know, the first place I lived, I was illiterate. Then I moved when I was four to a housing project in Inwood. And then I started reading. And really, the main thing I remember reading throughout my entire youth was uh, Hardy Boy novels. You know, the Hardy Boys were these two... Detectives? Young, teenage detectives. Yeah, I think they were brothers. Yes, I think they're brothers. Frank yeah. and something yeah. Hardy. Three of them. Or did they, they might still did exist them. in some form, actually. Like in a sort of graphic novel form. Yeah. I'm trying to remember if they ever swerved. You know, if there was swerving in their novels. You know, they would go to a kind of a semi-haunted house... There'd be a secret. They'd be snooping around. Someone would maybe attack them. Not very, you know, uh, lethally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not very dangerously in a kind of gentle, waspy, 1940s way. Yeah, oftentimes it involved cars. You know, there were car sort of events. You know, I think one of them could drive or something. There were cars. Yeah, there like, were cars. There must have been swerving. American automobile industry, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In, in, the, um, in, the, in the spirit of Freud, um, why did you bring up the Hardy Boys? Well, you were just saying, when did you first hear of swerving? Oh, and swerving. And I would just think, the I Hardy probably Boys. didn't hear it in conversation. Oh, I probably read it. He felt it. He felt it. In felt the it? Hardy Boys, like, identification, you felt a swerve. Like, you felt <laughs> that... The one thing I want to, I kind of want to bring ourselves back to, you know, the meaning of swerve, Um, (laughs) you know, and and, um, the one thing is its etymological roots, you know, and that it's important to remember that swerve not only means to turn, but also to rub, as well as to carve, that it's one of its... um, senses is the idea of cleaning out or of wiping out is is huh. also identic to the notion of swerve which was picked up in the middle ages sense of swerve which had to do with also making off you know making like like wandering like making off making off like i i'm going to make off from here or else you know <laughs> Like um, like a divergence, like turning aside, was also a swerve. Like in terms of uh, one's life, you know, you mm. make a decision. Mm. Uh, like the Flintlock episode in, uh, you know, Dashiell Hammett's uh, mm. Maltese Falcon. But the, um, the key thing is also to remember that it means to grind and to scour, to clean. Mm. But that also is an aspect of swerve, actually. That's its mm. medieval association mm. of this word, which I think <clears throat> is important 
because to swerve, it's essentially associated with avoiding. Am I mm. correct? Like that's why you swerve to avoid something that's coming towards you, some force, mm. some situation. Am I right? Mm. So you're using that to avoid, right? Can't you also swerve towards something? I mean, it seems like you, you know, your car goes off the road and you hit a patch of black ice, which is the big terror up here in the Catskills. Right, your, right. You, your car is swerving off the road and you swerve it back. You know, no, you're swerving you're towards swerving the road. First, you're counter swerving. <laughs> You Doesn't need, count I, as swerving. I'm wondering if there is an instance in which you can use the word swerve that is other than avoiding. You well, what if you like, you know, partly I was going to give these examples from these like tough guy detective stories I'm reading. But so it like it just fills your head with the homicide. But suppose you want to murder your third grade teacher and you're driving along. Oh, there's my third grade teacher. I'll swerve towards her and kill her. That's swerving towards something. I I guess no. So. No, no. I I I'm stymied. I guess. I mean, I guess it can be an attractive force. <laughs> I that's that that constitutes a kind of swerve for me, because <laughs> my feeling is that you know that it's principally used to avoid, and then you know, void means empty to empty out. Hmm. So the swerve, you know, as being like this swerve of trying to avoid something is also a void of making, you know, of making a void, which is hmm. the cognate of a void. Yeah. So I'm feeling, you know, this resonance and this kind of, um, to be honest, a sort of beautific um, sense of harmonium with the consciousness of the Middle Ages. I find myself thinking about doing the dishes and washing out a cup and that kind of swerving motion, uh, this kind of circular motion you have to make to get something clean. Yeah. Or generally, I don't know if you have to make it, but it's what you kind of almost un involuntarily do. You kind of swerve your hand around in a circle to clean the bowl, to clean the uh, cup, even the plate, that swerve. It's kind of an, I mean, you don't think of yourself as swerving because you're kind of uh, directed towards cleaning the vessels. Yeah. Yeah, there's, if, if I may interject, there's this wonderful scene in, um, in the uh, Razor's Edge, you know, the movie with uh, the, the funny guy. Bill uh, Murray. Bill Murray, yeah. And um, there's an Indian who meets him on the river. He's in his houseboat. And he, he speaks of that process of washing the dishes as being, a, a, you know, mm. a moment you know, of sort of attention, mm. you know, like a kind of self-presence. Mm. Mm. And, yeah, the, and that swirling motion. I mean, the one thing I would say, and this is just hypothetical, but I like this idea of swerve, you know, and I'm and I speculate about the possibilities of, you know, being in a continual state of swerve, you know, <laughs> that practice, you know, to be continually reminded of the swerve, to mm. always be thinking of that turning of the cyclical nature of breath, mm. of breath, of beginning and ending, of that circularity mm. of speech and stuff like that. What about the um, the volta? Do you know that literary term? 
what term? Volta? The Volta in poetry, the Volta or the rhetorical shift. Hmm. Uh, no, I don't. The rhetorical shift. Yeah, I don't know it. It's like a, a dramatic change in thought and or emotion. Can you, do you know an example of it? Well, I like the term, and I and I there's a literary journal, Volta. Well, I mean, lots of John Ashbery's work, for example, is full. Oh yeah. Uh, there's swerve, the the sudden change in in tone or interrogative mode. It's just I, a, just it is a, a literary term that I remember um, Jory Graham using when I took her her poetry seminar. Huh. And, writing in the uh, the margin of my notebook and looking up later huh. but everything yeah, yeah. To do this were mm. but specifically in the context of um of poetry uh, mm. i like it the one thing about ashbury you know which i do consider to be you know within that thing you know that you started sparrow with the hardy you know hardy har hard <laughs> you know boys is huh. is john ashbury there, there's certain setups that he plays, you know, like a car dealer. Uh-huh. And there's this weird thing where he pulls something, and I feel, you know, that it's um, that it's on, uh, on on a kind of axis. He pulls something from under. He like rips the thing from mm. under, you know, what he's constructed, this house yeah. of cards, you know, and reveals the void. The emptiness, mm. the swerve underneath, the mm. void underneath, you know, the scoured mm. place. And, um, you know, that's Ashbury's uh, thing that I most appreciate from his work, for sure. And it is swerving. Uh, this is interesting. I remember this, Jory Graham as well, that T.S. Eliot called the, um, the volta, the poetic swerve, the, uh, the most important means of of a poetic effect since Homer, hmm. and you know, uh, in, within the context of modern poetry. Well, the uh, the one thing I would I feel a little ambiguous about that, to the extent that um, the swerve is also kind of a shock, you know, hmm. it's sort of a punishment. Like I'm going to shock you. I'm going to bah. I'm going to surprise you. I'm going to you know boogie you out. I'm going <laughs> to jump out from the pie in the bushes and you know. Like in the Hardy Boys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was going to talk about um, this book I've been reading by Ross MacDonald. He's a kind of an L.A. detective novelist. This is a series of stories called The Name is Archer. And it's about this uh, detective whose name is Archer. And I was thinking about the swerve in literature and since this is what i'm reading you know so here's this uh, story called the called guilt edged blonde guilt g-u-i-l-t guilt hyphen edged blonde yeah and it begins like this a man was waiting for me at the edge of the runway he didn't look like the man i expected to meet those are the first two sentences so there's the swerve already you know what i mean and right. uh, and that's kind of what a story is, or certainly what a tough guy detective story is. There's a swerve, and then ultimately there's a moral swerve. And it turns out, I'll keep reading this. 
He wore a stained tan windbreaker, baggy slacks, a hat as squashed and dubious as his face. He must have been 40 years old to judge by the gray in his hair and the lines around his eyes. His eyes were dark and evasive, moving here and there as if to avoid getting hurt. <laughs> and then it turns out that this guy, the guy that's... Oh, to avoid getting hurt. That's cool. Yeah, wasn't that great? That's this guy is a great writer. No one knows of his existence, Ross MacDonald. And then that guy, it turns out, is, you know, I hate to ruin the story for you, but his moral swerve is what the story is all about. You know, he's the one that's going to eventually be murdered by his wife. Why? Because he pimped out his stepdaughter to his brother. So, you know, that was his swerve. He's like, he loved his brother. His brother was a big mobster. He had this very cute, young, 20-year-old, blonde, sexy, gilt-edged, blonde uh, stepdaughter. So why not just rent her out to his brother? And, you know, that swerve, you know, the way we've all done it, made these kind of moral mistakes that we kind of talk ourselves into that uh, the whole time you're swerving, you're thinking there's logic to this. My brother needs somebody, mm -hmm. you know, he's going to, if it's not her, it's somebody else. She wants it. And it's clear that she does want it in this, in the book. And you know, I, you I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, and I and I and I and I think that from the broader perspective, you know, in this long range, like you know, <laughs> of the bow, of the narrative bow. But at the same time, that I would I would redirect maybe, you know, that the swerve is, has a suddenness. That the mm. swerve is like has a little bit of, um, dare I say, the metanoia. What is the metanoia? Metanoia means um, change of heart. You know, it's the Greek. Metanoia comes up in, um, you know, different places. So the swerve is is sudden. It's characterized by suddenness, yeah. But I, you know, and it's in its in its in its colloquial sense, you know, not necessarily that making off, which sounds mm -hmm. like your thing is more like a kind of making off. Like mm. kind of planning and a kind of deviation, and I think there may be that kind of languorous swerve also. Yeah, I think there probably can be. I mean, you were talking about breathing as a swerve, and breathing is generally not sudden, shocking. How is you know, it? I, I think there might be two swerves ultimately to you know to oversimplify the swerve, the fast swerve and the slow swerve. Oh yeah, I like that. Like the different, uh, <laughs> like developing a sensitivity or becoming a connoisseur of swerve. <laughs> yeah. And also, I'm reading this book very slowly. It's called How to Build a Time Machine. Hmm. And it's sort of a, mm, sort of a lesson in Einsteinian physics. And also, on the other hand, this guy seems to really believe you can literally uh, build a time machine. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he says that time, time sort of doesn't exist. Like, I mean, from a physics standpoint, so like a slow swerve and a fast swerve are obviously they're relative and there's no, in a sense, they're the same thing. You know, like a swerve, the swerve that 
that took Rome down over 400 years and the swerve that you do with your car, they're the same. They're just uh, on a different scale. They look to us different, but they're really the same. Something like that. <laughs> Definitely. I mean, you know, there's psychic swerves. There's physical swerves. Mm -hmm. There's um, emotional swerves. Yeah. There are. And I think, you know, emotional serves are a very fast form of swerve. I think mm -hmm. breathing is, the, is yeah. I mean, the problem is kind of everything becomes a swerve. Exactly. Like, the universe is tautological. That's the, <laughs> that's the esoteric. What um, do you mean tautological? <laughs> oh, no, no. That the, that the universe is a constant um, oscillation between mm. assonance and dissonance, between mm. consonance and dissonance between harmony and chaos mm. uh, that we're in a continual vacillation between these two states and is that a swerve you're saying it is I, I don't i don't know if we want to take it that far do we want to take the take the swerve to the edges of uh of what it you know to the edges of what you know we can conceive i think that we are a swerve <laughs> that we are the the alpha and the omega, for sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, what what isn't a swerve? Is there anything that isn't a swerve? Like maybe like being what? married for thirty years and sitting on your porch with your wife and smoking your corncob pipe. Maybe that's not a swerve. <laughs> Stasis is not a swerve. Fear. Fear is not a swerve. I don't know. I'm I'm wondering. I don't know. I mean, what would it that would keep you, you know, sitting on the front porch? I don't know. I mean, I believe in that kind of um, continuity of experience with another being, you know, and the profound nature of that. But many times the scenario that you were seeming to articulate was one of some constraint or of some uh -huh. forced into being on the front porch, although that may be my projection. Yeah, this could be your therapy <laughs> session. I mean, it just happens that I've been married for 30 years, so I think about that. I think about not even consciously. I wasn't even thinking of myself, but it's like, yeah, I've been married for 30 years. I haven't really swerved in that sense, <laughs> uh -huh. and I'm sort of grateful for it. Uh -huh. Sort of grateful for it. What a phrase. <laughs> The one thing that I would be uh, loath not to mention is Harold Bloom's use of the word swerve in terms of his essay um anxiety is influence yeah he uses that as like the first ratio or he has some scale of yeah he has sort of an algorithm actually of influence that he articulates in that essay but mm -hmm. i recall the first one was called the the swerve which had to do with influence uh, of the previous generation tendency of writers to seek to differentiate themselves, which I believe he associated in some measure and not not so small to a kind of Freudian, you know, father son thing. Oedipal relationship. Oedipal. Yeah. Very much so. Yeah. So Oedipal is like because Oedipus didn't know <laughs> it's his father, right? If you know yeah. it's father and you're still like moving within that dynamic that's where you're starting to get into a uh hyper odd circumstance boy there, there are a lot of uh swerves in um, sophocles and oedipus rex that's for sure 
Swer- swerving away from one's destiny. Mm-hmm. Right. From the prophecy. Swerving mm-hmm. away from um, from Corinth. Oedipus um, redirects himself and ends up um, at Thebes. That's full of swerves. Mm-hmm. And the, the main reason that Oedipus is cursed is he loses his temper when he's in traffic and kills the other uh, kills his father who's kills like Lance, the yes. guy in front of him who he doesn't realize is his father because his father his father swerves from um, patrimony by exposing the baby oedipus oh oedipus is so but two years old because he hears the prophecy that he will be killed by his son mm. but the baby is not killed the baby is taken by a shepherd and, and ends up in corinth in the royal household full of swerves See, where I would go necessarily from here in a kind of swerve is that, if I'm not mistaken, the meeting at the crossroads, if it, if it doesn't have a divine, you know, blah, 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 deus ex machina kind of thing, it's a chance event. Mm-hmm. This idea of, like, the swerving, right? When you swerve, it's not something you anticipate. You know, like hmm. a swerve is not something that you do in if you anticipate. I think that's a defining characteristic of swerve, actually, is its relationship with chance. Hmm. There's hmm. no premeditation. There's no plan. There's no calculus. Right. Like a swerve hmm. is something that doesn't, that idea that you had about Sparrow <laughs> killing, you know, your... The third grade teacher. I'm sorry. I don't mean to... Yeah, so you're disagreeing with that. You're saying that's not a true swerve. I, I, yeah, I'm saying that a swerve is something that has to do with uh, coming into a state of opposition with chance and mm. have to make some choice as a swerve, mm. a, a choice that deviates from the norm. Yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, it's, a, it's part of a chance operation. But it, it seems like an Oedipus... The it's not a matter of chance. Like I never thought about this, but if Oedipus's father hadn't panicked and tried to kill his son, and he just said, "Look, I love my son. Uh, I will stick with him. I'll take my chances." Yeah, maybe it's a bogus prophecy. Then, then possibly none of it would have happened. So it was that. It was a conscious decision. You know, it wasn't just, it was a, it was a conscious, in, in, in Sophocles, I think it was a conscious huh. moral swerve, if you count that as the origin of the problem. Yeah. Well, I like the idea of, like, the conscious swerve as being like the, the fluttering of the wings of the butterfly in the Amazon, you know, <laughs> it to, like, you know, rain next Tuesday and... and hmm. Schenectady, or yeah. I mean, it, I guess we are kind of getting down into a kind of ultimate argument of like free will versus fate, or something like, which I think is actually kind of key to those Greek tragedies. There, where it's a little unclear whether right. it's free will or fate. Or fate. This is one thing that also arose, you know, in in contemplating the state of swerve, and I and um. Is the Robert Creeley um, saying a road that that has no a road is long that has no turnings 
Hmm. Robert Creeley wrote, and it was either a road is as long that knows no turnings, which makes it sound a little um, antiquated, which some of them really can, you know, seem a little bit kind of like early modern or late medieval. But <laughs> irrespective of that, I wanted to add this um, this line that I wrote. Um, a road is long that 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 knows no turnings. A road is boring that knows no swervings. <laughs> well, that does seem, that's kind of what I was saying before about boredom being the opposite of swerving, using the example of marriage. <laughs> the antithesis, yeah. Can you think of a, a swerve moment in your life hmm. where there was a significant turn that didn't have a premeditated quality that ended up feeling like destiny? I mean, for me, I had this very precise thing that happened to me that I flunked out of Cornell University when I was 19 and I certainly didn't exactly intend to flunk out uh, you, by definition you sort of can't intend to flunk out of somewhere and uh, you know it came out of nowhere at the time it felt that way and it completely changed my life and now it feels like destiny that uh, is the example that most easily comes to me. I'm really curious about how lives um, developed. So how long did it take, would you say, between flunking out and the moment when it began feeling like destiny? Was there a, a lengthy period of time, years, decades? Uh, I mean, if, in my memory, depending yeah. on how you define destiny. Was it a long swerve or a short swerve? I think it was a long swerve. It took me about a year to flunk out. I went there for two years. First year, I had a B average. The second year, I kind of slowly and irrevocably flunked out. And as soon as I flunked out, I think I felt very liberated. Mm. Like, you know, I didn't want to go to college. And I thought that I would have to keep going forever doing something I didn't want to do. And suddenly, I was free. So I think it may have felt immediately like destiny. It was kind of horrible while it was going on. It was almost like free falling out of an airplane over the course of a year. You know, if it took you a year to fall out of an airplane and watching the ground get closer and closer. <laughs> Did you Scary. feel at the same time, not necessarily within the confines of that trope, a feeling of magnetism to your swerve? In other words... Mm. Perhaps rather than it being a, uh, a a falling, it was more like. Oh, I see. Well, I'm going to be frank with you, you know, because I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. Was it an act of love? <laughs> well, I was in love at the time, or I thought I was, and that was kind of tied into it, you know, having this girlfriend that I wanted to spend a lot of time with, who was also flunking out of college. <laughs> you swerved together. Yeah, well, there was a whole group of us. Maybe four of our circle of friends all flunked out together. Four or five, maybe something like that. Did you stay around Cornell or did you leave? Well, we were all uh, in this little group. We'd already rented this house for the next year, not realizing we were swerving out of college. So then, like, there were nine of us living in this house in the, the following semester. And, uh, you know, four of us had flunked out. So we... We stayed in the house, and eventually, you know, I think all of the flunk outs took off. Were your parents upset? 
My parents? Yeah. Yeah, I think they were devastated. Sure. I mean, I think that was part of the idea, to the extent that it was an idea. <laughs> it was one of the, you know, side benefits of it. And they're still alive, my parents. I know. Although maybe they're less horrified now. Have you spoken to them about it over the years? or? Not much. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like a black hole that we never enter you know it's like a family that has its secrets of course it's taboo. even from itself you know it's it's funny the swerve that i was thinking about in my own life was um in some ways the opposite it's when i ended up going to divinity school huh so i i didn't feel particularly religious or interested in, in attending um seminary or divinity school i was applying for um english PhDs, Hmm. when someone planted the seed, and I just went ahead and applied and and did it. There was no real reason for me to go. I didn't feel um, impelled to in the moment. There wasn't a rational argument, but it ended up feeling like destiny. So what happened? You graduated from divinity school? Yeah, I graduated from divinity school, and above and beyond the... um, the, the credential, it was the people I met at that moment in my life, others giving me um, a vocabulary and who I felt at home with in huh. a pretty significant way. But it really was a swerve. It, it wasn't, there was no plan there. No, it was, I, I still am ha- having a hard time explaining it. Huh. Not the most interesting example in the world, but. No, it's pretty unusual. Interesting to me. An example. You, so you have like a PhD in divinity or something? No, I, I did um, um, a master's in divinity, and then I got a PhD in clinical psychology. Huh. Where'd you go? To divinity school? I went to Harvard Divinity School. Huh. That's the place to go if you want divinity. Well, I think it's fantastic that, uh, you know, for you, the personal swerve took you toward the divine. Though, um, you know, that for me, I would say singularly that this doing this podcast right now this is our first podcast i consider that a swerve mm. happy to be riding uh riding this arc uh with you guys thank you so i guess next time we're gonna finish up on swerve and uh you know ready to sign off hallelujah the first gods were trees <laughs> many thanks for joining us on this edition of baffling combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous and please join us next time and remember to stay tuned and strange